don't know what my name is. I don't know what my name is. <laughs> Alan Shearer, welcome to the Adrian Strong podcast. It's so wonderful to have you here. I am just pleased as punch to be part of this. Well, pleased as punch is a great way to start. I like that. I like that a lot. So this podcast is about conversations with everyday extraordinaries. I feel really passionately about introducing the world to um, to different people and to each other. And I think we all have something extraordinary about us. And I know you are no exception. You are uh, a friend. You are um, a husband to one of my friends. I'm friends with your wife, Elizabeth Carr, as well, who is also an extraordinary. I need to get her on this podcast. You are a photographer, a runner. You are a suicide survivor, an advocate, a badass, I would add. Um, And all of those things. Can you tell the listeners a little bit, just the the beginning surface stuff, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. Um, I mean, I'm Alan Peter Shearer Jr. I'm the oldest of three children. Uh, My mom's Eileen, my dad's Alan Sr. I have... uh, my sister's name is Allison. My brother's name is Rick. I'm the oldest of 20 grandchildren. Wow. Uh, I think, and I think there's 27 or 28 great grandchildren now. Um, you know, my, uh, fortunately and unfortunately, my story starts far, be- far before I was born. My story starts, you know, um, with my mom's story, with my grandparents' story. I mean, it's a, it's a splinter effect of all the things that happen in their lives to bring me into this world. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather played center field for the Red Sox. His name is Jimmy Pearsall. He was go Sox. Yeah, first public cases of bipolar disorder in sports, and I was his. I was you know my mom's first child, the first grandchild born into the family, and uh, was. I, was that I'm go gonna ahead. I'm gonna dive in with questions as we go. I have sure, so many yeah. I have so yeah. many questions. So was and I you know you and I have have talked a little bit about all of these things, but um, we waited to go really deep into them because um, we wanted the listeners to hear it as conversation style as we go. So what? Right. How did that first first of all with your grandfather and the Red Sox? How did that become a public thing? Because as we all know, or I think most of us know, um, mental health it's still such a stigma, right? Um, but how did that diagnosis for him come about? Was it a difficult thing, um, to find? Was it something that was kind of known that he was bipolar or how did that really come about? Oh no, they didn't know. Yeah. They just thought he was, they just thought he was crazy. They just, yeah. I mean, my grandfather, well, I say, yeah, not he's crazy. I say, yeah, because that's unfortunately right. such a common, I mean, that's what they thought. Right. That was it. That right. Was, he, he was just over the top. He was you know, he was, he was just, you know, I'm not sure when as far back as mental health and mental illness go and knowing about bipolar disorder and manic depressive disorder and mood disorders in general. Um, but you know, it wasn't my, it wasn't my grandfather's fault. My great grandfather put extreme amounts of pressure on my grandfather to be great. Mm. He didn't allow him to be great. He, he created this atmosphere where he had no other choice but to be great. And when you when you love your parent, right? When you 
love your parents. You're going to do anything to make them feel better. We would rather them feel good than us to feel good. Isn't we that want, the truth? Yes. We, we want to see them excel because all we can see and feel is what's going on inside them. You can't hide your feelings and emotions. Like as much as we like to not let anybody get into our bubble of pain and, and fear and frustrations and, and anxiety and nervousness and worry, but though we wear those things on us, right? They, they, they're, <laughs> they're these yeah. badges of courage, I guess. They're, they're these uh, big blankets on us that hold us down. And like my great, my great grandfather, you know, always, always pushed my grandfather. You're going to make it to the majors, but it was never, you're going to make it to the majors. It was Jim, we're going to make it to the majors, right? Mm -hmm. We're not going to spend more than one year in the minors, right, Jim? And so how do you live up to any of that? Yeah, that's pressure? a lot and of so, pressure, especially for, I mean, we think about pressure that parents put on little leaguers, but you think of to go pro. I mean, we all know right. that's almost impossible, right? It takes a very, right. it's a small percentage of the population that even has that opportunity um, right. to, to play in, in Fenway. Right. And so my grandfather was a very gifted athlete. He was actually a better basketball player than he was a baseball player. And actually the Celtics wanted to sign him as well. Um, That's a tough problem to have to have to choose between uh, both of those. I'm, yeah, he, yeah. He, um, he played in the Connecticut Schoolboy Championship at Boston Garden in uh, 1948 and helped his team win um, that championship. And the scout from the Red Sox was in the stands. And so he went that spring to watch my grandfather play baseball. And that is what uh, propelled him to to Fenway Park, but you know, Red Auerbach wanted to sign my grandfather, but because my grandfather wanted to please my great grandfather so much, he, you know, he couldn't play basketball. He couldn't play the hmm. thing he, I think he might've enjoyed more than baseball because it was kind of separate. It was his thing. Right, he could own um, that. It was his, his dream right. as opposed to sh sharing that right. dream with the great grandfather, right. But That's... if you don't go down this rabbit hole, if, if my grandfather doesn't, Sign with the Boston Red Sox, and he doesn't go to Scranton Wilkesbury and meet my grandmother. I'm not here. My mother's yeah. not here. My aunts and uncles aren't here. My cousins aren't here, right? So things happen the way that they're supposed to. And I have bipolar disorder, so that I can help other people who have bipolar disorder. Like I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I don't like. I didn't like the highs and lows growing up. I didn't like the manic episodes. I didn't like the depressive episodes. You know, the one major goal since I realized I could change my life was to find some sort of balance, not to allow things to get too high, not to allow things to get too low. And if they were starting to head that way, to find a way out of it, to find a better, more healthy way out of it. When, you know, I, when did you, when did you find out that you had it or when did you know that you had it? Was it easier for you to, well, I don't know if easier is even the right term. Was it? Was it easier to find that diagnosis because of your family history? And was it something you found early on in your life? Or what did you and your family realize that later? All right. So we didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about it. Like it, there was no talking about it. Yeah. There no, you no don't talk about, about problems. That's not a there thing families no do. About, right. You know, I read about my grandfather's mental illness in his book called Fear Strikes Out. Uh, and there's a movie about him. Uh, a movie uh, based on the book called called Fear Strikes Out, stars Anthony Perkins as my grandfather, and Carl wow. Alden plays my great-grandfather. And um, Yeah, and then so I, you, you, weren't, you weren't really sure what was going on. It was just a lot of highs and lows. It was my life. I just thought I was a bad kid. 
Mm-hmm. I just was always treated like I was a bad kid. You know, life had its moments. Not everything was bad, but like those things that you remember are the ways did because you're just a, reba- a rambunctious kid, right? You're just a you're just a boy trying to to find his way in the world in a house full of um, man man hating women. Unfortunately, um, my mom's the oldest of nine kids, seven girls, two boys, and all I ever heard was men suck, men are assholes, and that's hard. That's for a yeah. Boy. Exactly. That would be incredibly hard to I was hear. Fight, I was fighting from. I was fighting. I was fighting a battle that I never should have had to fight. Well, that's two battles, right? If you were bipolar, and then also fighting the battle of just being a guy. Well, just being a boy in a, in a house full of women, and all I ever heard was that you know I'm a boy. Like, hey, hi, I'm a boy. So I'm. I automatically think that I'm bad. I automatically think that wow. <laughs> You know, I can't do anything right. I automatically so so my life started to be how many hats can I wear? You know, what hat did I need to wear for this one aunt, for my mother, for my nana, for my sister? You know, uh, all these things that I was trying to overcome just so I could find my own position in my family, so I could find my own my my own set of uh, emotional energy from the people I cared about. You know, and yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, it's not a new story. Right? It's not a new story. It's just I'm, my, my story is not any different than anybody else's. It's just uniquely mine. It's all the circumstances that I've gone through to, to get to this point and how I navigated it when I didn't understand it and how I've learned to navigate it now that I do understand it. And I don't hold grudges. I, I don't hold it against anybody. I what? know the battles my family was fighting. I know the battles my mother was fighting. I know that my dad left when I was four. And I know the battles he was fighting. Like, if you look at my family tree, it's not the greatest. So what, like, going back real quick, what did, what did, what stopped you from holding those grudges? Because, and, and hear me out, I think a lot of us can say, oh, I don't want to be one of those people that holds grudges and I don't want to you know, I don't want to blame anyone. And you seem, I hear, I've heard you say already time and time again, um, it's their story really contributed to my story and, you know, it's not their fault. I see the struggles that they went through and we can all see those struggles in our family members or in our friends and inherit those, um, mm. struggles, but still have a grudge and still have a really hard time accepting that. What allows you to, because I think that is unique. Um, about you and, and is unique in the sense that not everybody does that. What is that and, and what helps you be able to see that, no, I'm not going to hold this grudge and no, I'm not going to be angry that my mom told me that I don't know anything because I'm a boy and I'm not good at <laughs> X, Y, Z because I'm a boy. What stops you from, from holding that grudge? Understanding myself better. How do you do that? What are some tools that you use to do that? My like I've always had this inner monologue. I've always had this ability to talk to myself. I've always had this ability to say, Hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. You know, uh, and, and some, and, and as a kid, as a, as a small boy, I already had the awareness. Like I've had awareness my whole life. Like since I could realize that I could be aware, like, I, like I've done things as a young boy that n- most adults would be completely freaked out to do. Like when I was four, four and a half years old, I set my my mom's car on fire with a with a with a match that I lit. So we were in, we were 
this was when I was four and a half years old and my mother, um, we had moved to uh, Brooklyn, New York and she was going in for a, a job interview. She just wanted to run in because we were running behind. So my, my little sister was one and I was four and a half. Mm-hmm. And she had to run in and she left me and my sister in the car and I was a little pyromaniac and she left her cigarette case in the car. So I lit a match and it got me on my thumb. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it got me like it, it just it got me. So I let it go. And as I, I, I can still see it vividly. As I watched it fall to the ground, it looked like it went out. And it was a 1977 VW bug with um, polyester carpeting, shag carpeting. Ooh, that'll go up goes quick. Up like a, yeah. You know, so so maybe 30 seconds later, I uh, heard crack pop snap underneath the right front seat. So I was in the back seat with my sister and I had looked under there and it wasn't like it was just starting on fire it was a blazing inferno Ugh. like the whole the whole underneath of the seat was on were you fire. terrified no because you're because you're a pyro or because no because I, I did I don't get scared of stuff like that like I I revel in needing to do the right thing I revel in okay this situation is bad I revel in what is the right thing to do here like I I never it never once dawned on me to be scared at four and a half years old, it never dawned on me, holy crap, I could die. It was only on my mind to get my sister and me out of the car. So I, it was, it's interesting. It's, I can still see myself saying what I said to her. I just turned to her and I said, Allison, the car's on fire. we got to get out of here. So I pulled her out of those terrible car seat, pulled it up, pulled her up, put her over my, put, pulled her, put her over my shoulder and walked right over the, the – uh, the seat that was on fire and waited on the sidewalk for my mother to come outside. And I kind of just pointed at the car and said, sorry, mom, I, the car's on fire. Oh my gosh. What did she say? <laughs> I mean, I don't remember that. I just it's probably good that you don't remember that. I just remember the, I mean, I don't remember the words she said. I could, I can still, I, I mean, I, I know the face on her, <laughs> I know the yeah, yeah. On her face too well. Um, but like there's always been this thing inside of me that wants to know what the right thing to do is, what the better thing to do is, what can I do differently than, than is being done? Cause all I ever saw was my family taking their pain out on each other and out on me. And I just wanted to know why it shouldn't like, I always thought it should, it, it, there's gotta be a different way. Yeah. There's gotta be a better way. That this inner dialogue. Any of us are here. Yeah. That inner dialogue is a gift. Um, right. Being able to self-correct and learn a lesson and know what's right and be able to act in times that I think the majority of people would freeze um, in terror, um, it's it's a gift to be able to self-reflect and self-correct and be able to get your loved ones safe. Um, that tool has probably served you way too many very times. yeah very well more over time, the years. More times than it should have had to. Of course, you know, I I asked my mom once, I think I was, I I think it was, I I was like five and a half or six years old. I said, why isn't it who I am as a person that matters more than how much money I have in my pocket? And she was like, I don't know, Alan. And, and, And I guess I always knew, I guess I just wanted to hear her answer. I guess I just wanted to know if she thought like I thought, and it took a long time for me to realize that nobody thinks like I think. Nobody thinks the way I think. And I, and, and I have to, and you, let's go back to what you were asking me about how I cannot hold a grudge. I can't expect somebody else to understand me unless I'm willing to help them understand me. And if they aren't willing to understand me or they aren't ready to understand me, I have to be patient 
and appreciative of that fact. Say, Nobody, say that one no, more time. I don't want to interrupt you, but I want, sure. I want the listeners to hear that one more time. You can't make people understand you. No, I can't make people understand me. I have to have the patience, the courage, and the commitment to understanding that people are who they are, and it's taken them however many years to get to that point, and you can't ask them to change in a day, a week, a month, or a year. If they don't understand and aren't committed to fostering care to themselves, that's their timeline is completely different than my timeline. Their, their way of living is different than mine based upon all the things that they've gone through. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so everybody's triggers, everybody's memories, everybody's circumstances are completely different. Yeah. You know, so when I, so when I say my story isn't better than anybody else's, it's just mine. What have I done every day to get here to 47 years old? What have I done healthier than I did before? What what have I allowed myself to be part of that I was afraid to be a part of before? Like these are the things. These are these are the life skills that were not taught in school. These are the life skills that we need the most. Yeah. I think how do we all we all agree that um mental health and and life skills there are a lot of life skills that in mental health that should be talked about in school um and could save lives could save relationships could make relationships um and they're just not talked about um even to have that dialogue with yourself um like i said it's a gift but it should also be talked about um i think the most important conversations you'll have in your life are with yourself Right. I mean, I used to, you know, I just have conversations with myself. And if I was getting overwhelmed by my own thoughts and feelings, you know, and I would just be like, all right, all right, all right, all right, slow down. You can't control that. Slow down. You can't control that. That's not something you can control. So to be overwhelmed by it is only going to hurt you. And it's only going to spill over into whatever else. So that's always been my mentality is, all right, you know, racing thoughts and things. Sometimes they're, they're overwhelming, but how I handle them what I do to allow them to dissipate is the most important thing I can do for my mental health yeah, and, and, my, and my physical health, really. T- speaking of, I want to get into physical health, too, because we met running, which was yeah. awesome. We were running in the, in the Oval. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to go back to your 11-year-old self <laughs> and or maybe 10. I know the story starts long before you were even born with your great-grandfather right. and, and grandfather and father and mother. Um, but you have, you've been very open in your life and um, online and, and everything about how you are a suicide survivor. And I happen to know, because I'm your friend, that that happened at 11 years old. Um, can you take the listeners back to 11-year-old Alan? Sure. Um... So, like I said, we had lived in Brooklyn when I was four and a half, and my mother was chasing my brother's father, and that didn't work out. So we went back to to Cape Cod. So we're from Cape Cod. We're from Harwich. We uh, I spent my first uh, most of my first eleven years in in Harwich, other than the little bits of in pieces of other places. Harwich was what I knew as my home, and my nana's house is what I knew as my house. Um, because, um, uh, because my parents got divorced when I was four and I still remember that day in probate court in Barnstable, lots of crying and pain. Mm-hmm. And so I we imagine. were living with my Nana, uh, uh, 
with some of my aunts because my mom's the oldest, and so there was a there was there was a few of my younger aunts still living in my nana's house, and occasionally my uncle Chris would live there um, off and on when he was home from the Navy and stuff like that. So that was my home. That was what I knew. Like no matter what was wrong, that was the place I knew as my home. It was what felt ill and mm-hmm. yep comforting and. Comforting as dysfunctional can it could be. That's what I knew. Yeah. And so my mom had filed for Section 8 housing, which is help for, you know, for single parents who aren't making enough money or making any money at all to to be able to uh, rent, uh, rent a home. And so the house that my mom found to rent was in a very secluded town of Brewster. And, and I was so used to having the attention I needed. My mom couldn't give me attention. She really couldn't. And we'll get to that as we move forward into why I chose to try to take my life in the first place, um, I could get attention from somebody. Somebody would play with me. Somebody would take me to the beach. Somebody would would play ball with me in the backyard. Somebody, whatever, ride bikes with me, blah, blah, blah. There's, uh, there was much anticipation of me coming into the world uh, until I got my own voice. That was awesome, you know, mm-hmm. until I asked the questions, until I was wondering why everything was going wrong, why they couldn't love each other, why they didn't realize they had each other. You know, we didn't have to really worry about all the crap we didn't have. We actually had each other. We actually have each other. We actually have these moments in life that we are blessed to be with each other. Mm-hmm. And 2020 has definitely shown us how important that is. And and it also has shown us that maybe the people that we're surrounding ourselves with aren't the right people. Yep. And so when, when we moved out to Brewster, which is a very secluded town, the school I was going to start to go to was a, a regional school district. So... Uh, it was kids from all these towns that I'd never met before, and I wasn't really great at making friends in the first place. I didn't really have that many friends. I was very introverted as a child uh, because of the environment I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And so we moved to Brewster, and I think we had been there for a couple months. And you know, things were uh, tumultuous with me and my mother, anyways. You know, she just wanted to, <laughs> she just wanted to control me. She just wanted to rule the roost like her mother did to her. Um, and so the, it was getting close to Christmas and we were watching, uh, a Christmas Carol and we, I mean, we watched it pretty much every day. I think, cause I think it might've been my mother's favorite Christmas movie or it might've just been the only thing on television. Um, <laughs> Christmas it seems to be that. Watching. Yeah. It seems to be that the time of year. Right. And so it was, it was 1984 and I was 11 and my mother, I wanted to watch Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers was brand, Gerard was a male role model to me. It, I mean, it was a it was a dumb show, but it was fun for me, mm-hmm. really. And I was like, hey mom, you know, Buck Rogers is, is on, can we watch it? And she's like, no. I'm like, mom, you know, can we just watch Buck Rogers? This is on all the time. You know, we watched this yesterday and it was, you know, it was always about what she wanted to do. And it was never, you know, I just wanted her to say to me, hey, Alan, we can watch what you want. And I probably would have watched 10, 15 minutes of it, maybe not even that much. And I would have just gone off and, and played, right? I would have gotten tired of sitting around and, and mm-hmm. I would have gone and done something. But it, 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 she just wasn't really paying attention to me. And I was as stubborn as the Irish in me would allow and which is pretty much a lot. I'm um, Irish too. So, I hear this. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so I was just having this perpetual barking match with her about not being able to watch what 
I wanted to watch. And, and finally, I was like, fine, I'm going to go upstairs and kill myself. And it was an idle threat at that point. And, and, and an 11-year-old boy who understands that that's an idle threat. I mean, it, it, as a four-year-old boy, I shouldn't have been in a car fire. At 11 years old, I shouldn't be thinking about killing myself. Did, did you – wait, did you say that out loud or did you – was that I'm going to go upstairs and kill myself? Was oh, that, no, I told her. I told her. Wow. What I was said, her response? Said, I'm going to, and, and at that point, it was an idle threat. At that point, it was I just want my mother to, to, to see, to realize, to say, hey, wow, this is really important to him. You know, and so what she said next is what made me realize that there was no love that I will love. And because what she said next was fine, whatever. I'm oh, not exactly Alan. sure what the words were, but I think yeah. it was one of those two phrases. And I was, I, my, and my thought in my head was, fine, I'll show her. Oh, man. I'll well, show her. Like, I think what I, what I hear I when, when you're, yeah, is looking for love it may not be about the show right it's that you feel seen and heard we we all know that the greatest human need or maybe we don't know um we need to be taught more and more in this world that the greatest human need is to feel heard and understood not necessarily agreed with so people thinking politics these days right but um we want to feel understood. We want to feel heard. We want to feel seen. We want someone to bear witness on our lives. I want some. I wanted some damn validation. Yeah, absolutely. It was that I was there. I, absolutely. I didn't ask to be there. You know, right. My parents. You know, my parents put me on this earth, and then they decided to split up, and then they, they decided to do whatever they did. You know, I still don't have a relationship with my father, even though I've tried, but I'm not willing to do more than fifty percent. So, know, so take me back than, to that moment the, when the, she says this. When she says this and says you know, find whatever or, or, or a version thereof, right? And that's the, right. that's the gist of her attitude toward this. What did you, what did you do? What did you think? Well, I was like, I'll show her. And so I went upstairs and I was in karate. And so I grabbed my purple belt out of the closet. And if you know anything about a karate belt, it's about a week long. And so it was going to work. It was going to work. I wasn't, this wasn't a threat. Like this wasn't, uh, this wasn't, I had, come to grips with the fact that my mother didn't know how to love me. I came to grips with the fact that there was no love in my life. I came to grips with, I'm okay going. Like I've tried, I've been here, I've put myself out there, I've cared, I've shared, I've been laughed at and I've been ridiculed as an 11 year old boy, I've been told, you don't have a PhD at the end of your name, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And so mm. it was kind of an accumulation of all that stuff, all that pain, all that, uh, uh, suffering for just being part of that family, for just being the oldest grandchild in the family, for just being the oldest child of my, my mother, you know? And so I grabbed my karate belt and I wrapped it around my neck as tight as I possibly could. And I triple knotted it. I looked at myself in the mirror and I said goodbye to myself. Oh my God. Sure. By the time I was finished in the bathroom saying goodbye to myself in the mirror, my face was the color of eggplant. I still can remember it. I can still remember taking my last breath and knowing it was going to be my last breath. Knowing, like not guessing, not wondering, not, hey, what's going to happen or um, what, what could go on if this happens to me. It wasn't about killing myself. I didn't want to die. I don't want to die, but you know, I don't want to die now. Like I want to, I want to leave this place far better than I found it. So yeah. everything I do has a passion, a purpose on purpose. Right. Like, so I walked, so I went into my room. I had triple knotted that sucker. Like nothing was getting that thing off in time to, to, 
to save me from what I've chosen to do. And it, you know, I kind of just, I kind of always go back to what Jesus said on the cross when he looked to the skies and said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And I just asked him to forgive my mother for not understanding what I needed. Mm. And so I kind of just closed my eyes. It didn't hurt. Like there was no pain. Like I was, everything I was doing was relieving pain. It was relieving suffering. Like it, it, I, I, I remember back and it just, I never felt scared. I never felt worried. I, I knew what I was here for. I knew what my path was. I knew what my purpose was. And I understood that children are a gift. They're not, uh, they're not a, um, burden burden. Yep. Yes. They're not a burden. No matter how much you want to treat them that way because you can't handle their energy and attitude. It's that's not their fault, right? We, Damn straight. We, they didn't ask to be here. Damn straight. And so, so I closed my eyes, I crossed my hands on my chest and I just relaxed. And next thing I know, I have this warm feeling over me. It wasn't like it was a white light. It wasn't like, it was nothing more than the most beautiful feeling I ever felt in my entire life. Like the best hug you could ever be part of, like in a, in a heated blanket. Like it was just this feeling of you're okay. Like there's, there's nothing to be afraid of. And, and God said to me, whoa, Alan, what are you doing here? He's like, you shouldn't be here. And I was like, well, there's no love in my family. I don't, I don't want to be there. <laughs> and all I remember is, and I'm not exactly sure. And it wasn't like he was talking to me. It was just this inner monologue of myself, like mm-hmm. this, this monologue of, of these things that I've talked to myself about for my, all my young 11 years at that point. It was, Hey, you know, you're, you, you're, you're too strong a kid. Your balls are too big. You're too bold. You're too passionate. You care too much to be here right now. You know? And he said, Alan, I need you to go back. I need you to go back and you're not going to like it. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And I didn't understand it. I didn't understand at that point. The gifts and the blessings that God bestowed on me being born into this family. First off being born to my parents. First off to, to all the things that I've gone through that I appreciate because he gave me a second chance to be here. Like it, it, I would have rather not, like if you give me a choice, I would have rather have gone back and just been energy because it, I, I, because it, it feels better, right? The, the death isn't the suffering. Life is the suffering. Yeah. Right. It's, it's what, it's what we, we don't do here because we're afraid of death makes us be afraid of life. But if we're afraid of life, we don't earn death. So it's like everybody dies at a different time because everybody decides to do what they're here for at a different time. Everybody decides to be who they're going to be when they decide to be it. Nobody's timeline is the same. Like that's the greatest thing about life. It's whenever you're ready to do something, your life begins. Like it took me 37 years for my life to begin. You know, so when I, when he said that to me, I was like, okay, you know, like, all all right, thanks, you know? Again, that inner dialogue that you have 
has served you in a way that is painful but beautiful but allows all of us to experience you as your friend, as listeners, as, you know, your wife and and everyone who knows you. Um, It allows that inner dialogue that you have that that helped save your life is (laughs) incredible and beautiful. Like, so the next thing I remember is opening my eyes. (laughs) So... My mother, I think, sent my sister up to see what I was doing because that's who she was and that's what she did. She didn't really do it herself. And so she found me or my brother found me. So I, I can't really discern who she sent. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was my sister because that's, you know, she's not going to ask. My little brother was seven years younger than me. And so he was a little kid. He probably, he probably wouldn't have been sent. And so... She hurries upstairs, I guess, and sees me lifeless. And so she gets the karate belt off as as fast as she can, but I'm still lifeless. So she smacks me across the face as hard as she can. And if you've ever seen how a body reacts to something like that when there's no blood in it, like it doesn't matter if it's your hand, if your hand falls asleep and you get the fingerprints in your hand because because you're touching mm-hmm. it and there's no blood in it. And so it left this handprint on my face for weeks. Like I'm talking a full blown handprint that it just looked like somebody had smacked the crap out of me. But the most interesting thing was like, I just was, I looked up and my first thought was, Oh man, I don't want to be here. You know, this is going to be really hard. This is going to be really hard. Like this being part of this, being part of my mother's life, with her pure narcissism, which isn't her fault. It was what she what she learned. And I think the last time my mother was happy was when she was a kid, when my grandfather was playing baseball and they had nannies and horseback riding or living in California and just all those things she, she was used to getting and, and being part of growing, growing up during that time as the oldest of Jim and Mary. But she also got the brunt of the load from my my grandfather because she needed the most from him and so he pushed her away and so she learned to push me away and yeah we can't be what we can't a vicious cycle we can't be what we can't see so if you didn't have great right. parents then you don't know you right. know unless you're you know willing to really take a good hard look at yourself maybe right. get some therapy um it's difficult to do that there's a great quote by glennon doyle of course anyone who knows <laughs> me knows i will never go a podcast without quoting her but it's so fitting for for this conversation that we're having and that's life isn't hard because you're doing it wrong it's hard because you're doing it right and I -hmm. think for so many of us that think oh I'm not supposed to I'm using air quotes right now supposed to have you know this emotion or I'm not supposed to stumble I'm not supposed to have a setback I'm not supposed to xyz because that's what the sitcom on tv shows um they think that they're doing it wrong but the reality is that you're doing life right if it's hard. Life is yeah. hard and it's difficult. Um, I always say a, f- a phrase with my friends saying adulting is really hard. Like it's not easy. You don't have to go through what I've gone through or what Alan has gone through to know that that life is really hard and it throws you situations and circumstances that can be unbelievably almost unbearable as, as Alan, as you're saying, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm really glad you're here. 
I'm glad you're sharing this story with everyone because I know without a shadow of a doubt that, um, that it's helping a lot of people, especially in these times who are at home with narcissistic parents or narcissistic spouse or sister or whoever, um, and are really struggling, um, or struggling with, you know, thoughts of suicide themselves. Um, we, we certainly as I'll put in the intro that, um, resources and such that you can call if you or someone you know is is uh, contemplating that so I want to make sure that we provide that what would we talk a lot about that inner voice I'm a big fan of the inner voice I have conversations with myself all the time Fred can attest to this my dog um, <laughs> he always wonders if I'm talking to him sometimes I am sometimes I'm not um, so you have you have centered your life around making sure that others, suffer less than you. You have centered your life around making sure that other people feel seen and heard and can use the tools that you have found to save themselves. That's my wording, not yours, but I I imagine that that's a a good way to put it. Um, And you are an advocate. Um, You work with the Phoenix Center. Can you tell me a little bit about the Phoenix and what that is? Yeah, the Phoenix is a nonprofit organization started by Scott Strode. I'm not exactly sure when he started it, but it began with him finding recovery in Kenmore Square in Boston. Um, so he started using physical fitness to get sober, to stay sober, to to find an active body so we had a calmer mind. Those are my words, not his. I believe that if you have an active body, it creates a calmer mind. The more Amen. you're outside your mind, the less it has a chance to control you as long, if you're doing something productive with your mind and your body. And so he started this organization called the Phoenix. Rise, recover, live is their motto. And so there's, um, there are chapters all around the country. There are chapters throughout Massachusetts. Uh, the one that I found sobriety in is Boston. Uh, New Market Square in Boston. The coolest thing about them is if you have 48 hours continuous of sobriety, you can use their facilities for free. And their fitness facilities, is that right? Yeah, so they do CrossFit, yoga. They have a huge rock climbing gym in their facility. It's the most amazing place. When I first walked into it, I I was taken aback by uh, what they had put together there. Um, And... I started as a supporter when Elizabeth was working for Back on My Feet and she was sending her members there and the Hope House uh, members that we were running with were going there. Elizabeth's like, you need to, uh, actually Elizabeth met Chris Daggett who was probably the first Boston member of uh, the Phoenix. He was doing runs on the Charles, uh, reaching out to people uh, in recovery and seeing if they wanted to run together and that's kind of led to uh, this huge space in Boston now. So uh, Elizabeth was dealing with Chris and Chris is just an amazing human. And, uh, she's like, Alan, you need to go over there. These are your type of people. And I was still drinking. Um, I had just gotten married to Elizabeth and, you know, things were, um, things were tough. Things were tough for me because I was doing something completely unique of what I'd ever done before, and that's to have a healthy relationship with a woman. And we can get to that mm-hmm. um, a little bit later. Um, so I went in there and I started supporting people in recovery, and I started 
Um, all the staff that works there, or most of the staff that works there, is is in recovery as well. And so I start started to see people in recovery thriving, smiling, laughing. And so I wanted to um, try it for 30 days. I wanted to try to be sober for 30 days. I just I needed to. I was drinking too much. I was drinking about a six pack of cider and half of a 1.75 of red wine every night, passing out. Uh, just from the pressure of trying to be the best man I possibly could be for Elizabeth and for her son and for myself and, you know, and, and what the word being a husband is and, and what being a partner is. And so all of that stuff was 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 hard for me because I'd never really seen it in my life. I'd Again, seen it on the yeah, we, we talked about uncles. you can't be what you can't see. Right. That's a lot of pressure. Right. Right. So so I, I, it wasn't that I, I wanted to drink too much or it was just that it was happening. Right. I, I re- finally realized that I was just drinking too much. And so I was like, I need at least 30 days of sobriety to kind of figure out what the heck is what the heck is going on. And because of the Phoenix, I chose to, to try. And then it became 60 days. Then it became 90 days. But the cool thing was I uh, the grand opening was um, September 29th of 2017, I think. I'm not sure if it's 2017 or 2018. Oh, no, it was 2018. All right. So actually, I was sober. I was sober from August 18th, 2018. And then I shot their grand opening photos for them. Then I did marketing photos for them. And it, it, it just kept showing me all these possibilities. It kept showing me that there was a community out there that if I reached my hand out, they were going to grab it. Right. That's what I've needed my whole life is instead of to be pushed away for someone to, to, to respond to, to what I was going through, to respond to, to uh, my need for support and what a community really is, is a support structure. No matter what, a good community is a functional support structure, not a dysfunctional support structure like we're yep. used to, yep. which is hard. It's, it's hard, hard to allow yourself to be part of those things. And finally, you know, I just realized that they were here for me as much as I was there. And so, 30 days became 60, 60 days became 90, you know, and, and then I got to my first year sober, 2019, and I, I was doing work with the Heron Project as well. Chris Heron used to play for the Celtics, and he battled drug and alcohol abuse, and now he helps kids and adults in recovery uh, through his organization, and so I ran the, um, I ran the whole month, like, so I ran for the Heron Project a lot for the beginning of 2019. I ran the LA Marathon. That was my first sober marathon uh, ever. And I ran Ragnar Cape Cod for them. And then I, on my sober date, on my August, on August 18th, 2019, one year sober, I ran the Falmouth Road Race with them. That's an epic race. On Cape Cod, right where I'm from. And I promised myself I'd never go to Falmouth in the summertime unless I had to. And so I didn't, ha- I didn't have to do it. I got to do it. I got to raise money. I got to raise awareness. I got to feel better about myself. I got to share it with my wife and stepson. I got to share it with all the members of the of the Heron Project, who does a lot of work with the Phoenix as well. The Phoenix, you know, bring, the Phoenix welcomes in any sober person or anybody looking for sobriety. Like I think that's the greatest thing is what kind of communities are we building? What kind of communities are we supporting? What kind of communities are we? Are we um, donating to? Um, are we looking at those things? Are we finding out their stories? Are we finding out their missions? And um, this organization, 
help me continue to save my life, help me to continue to move forward, help me to make better, more healthy decisions and to learn to battle going through in yeah. more healthy ways instead of uh, well, and it, it showed you teamwork, right? To be able to see yeah. people living and breathing on a mission to be healthier for themselves and people around us. I, I have always said time and time again, and I'm sure you believe this too, that we are better people when we help other people. So while you're helping yourself stay sober, get sober, stay sober, we're all better humans when we're helping other people too. Like with my struggles that I've been through time and time again, I think, well, even on my bad days, I know I'm helping other people um, face their bad days too. And there's something so rewarding about helping others. And I think the Phoenix is super lucky to have you and be able to share your story. I know speaking of sharing stories, you have a podcast as well called The Good Fight, The Good Hmm. Fight Podcast. I've um, interviewed with you before. So I want to encourage listeners to, to tune into that because, um, it's a great podcast and you can listen to my episode. I'll have that in show notes. Um, what would you tell someone who's struggling with addiction? Because again, it's still 2020 and we're all at home and maybe people are taking the load off at the end of the day and not realizing that suddenly, you know, three beers or four beers or six Mm. beers doesn't feel like as much as it would have, you know, last year. Um, and they're, they're struggling right now. They may be living alone or they may be living with people and it's affecting their work and their life. What would you tell them? It's okay. It's okay not to feel okay. Yeah. I think that's That's a good thing to remember. We need to realize that we're not always going to be okay. And we're not, we don't have it under control. There's uh, only a little bit of control that we have in this life. Really, it's about how we navigate all the stuff we can't control. And so really, it's thinking you have to do it alone and thinking that you should do it alone. And and the words man up or woman up or put your big girl pants on, those things need to go away. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Those phrases. are such damaging phrases. Yeah. Right. Those the gross and balls, Those, all of it. It's not. The, it's the not de- healthy. The, the, the deprecating and the, the self-destructive thoughts and feelings that come from things like that, come from words like that, from come from. Uh, if your father tells you to do that, or your mother tells you to do that, or your grandparents tell you to do that, it's just because they don't know how to handle themselves. It's not your fault. All yeah. right. None of this is your fault. What what you choose to do from the moment you realize, it's not your fault, is your fault. Right. It's it's what are you doing now? What are you doing today? You can't change yesterday and you can't create tomorrow without what you're doing. Like nothing else matters except what you're choosing to do right now. Yeah. What do you need to do? What do you want to do? What would you like to do? How would you like to do it? Who would you like to do it with? Are you a person you want to be friends with? Are you a person that you would want to be married to? Are you a person that you would want to be the parent of things like this. Like we have to look at ourselves. We can't keep looking out there, right? That's where the problems lie because you can't change anything about the perception of what somebody else feels about you, thinks about themselves and projects onto you. But the one thing you can do is what I did. And that's take responsibility for myself, hold myself accountable and realize that it was going to be ultimately my fault if I didn't change my life. 
Yeah, whatever you're not changing, you're choosing, right? That's a good thing for all of us to remember. Life's a choice, not a requirement. Yeah, yep, it's so true. And, you know, I think that's so profound too because it's – it's easy to think, oh, well, when this is over, oh, well, when this, then I'll, then I'll do this. Then I'll become a runner. Then I'll put the bottle down. Then I'll, you know, get better. Then I'll start to improve my marriage. But the time is happening now. And I want to stress to people, this isn't pressure to have quarantines got talent. This is just (laughs) a reminder to you to, you know, to maybe start, you know, looking at what choices you're making and are you making the best choices to, stay your healthiest self. And, and, you know, Alan, we've talked about this too, what you put in your body, it matters. And I think we all kind of know that, but when we talk about alcohol, certainly, but we talk about food a lot, you and I have had this discussion, you know, what we put in our bodies matters. And as runners, we certainly know that you either are um, benefiting yourself, you're either making it easy on yourself or really hard on yourself um, by what you eat. And for those people that aren't runners even, I know I have a lot of runners um, who are listeners, but even the people who aren't runners, it affects your mood and your anxiety and your mental health of what you eat. So um, I'll have a couple links up in the show notes about some resources of what foods really benefit um, your moods and what what will really bring you down. I think that when we talk, we're talking about all this mental health talk, I think that's really important. You talked about Falmouth Road Race. You've talked about um, the LA marathon, how many marathons have you done? Do, have I asked you this before? No, I haven't run too many. I mean, 26.2 miles is far. Yeah. You know? I mean, uh, have you done Boston? Sober, I ran 25, 25 miles of Wachusett mountain. Um, oh, is that, is that all? So it's, yeah. So that was, <laughs> that was, that was an interesting day. Um, have you me. done the Boston marathon? Uh, I have not. It's, uh, it's on the bucket list. Um, to be able to to do that would be great. I think that the amount of money you need to raise is 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 very difficult to uh-huh. uh, obtain, especially when you have forty thousand other people trying to to raise money for amazing organizations too. So it's just a huge commitment. There's a lot of commitments when it comes to having a charity bib, you know. So absolutely, it's, it's a commitment. You have to you have to be more. You have to be more aware you have to be more understanding of what it takes to raise 10,000, 11,000, 12,000. I know that's not the minimum, but that's what, you know, most most organizations are asking you mm-hmm. to to um, attain for them. And so it's hard, you know, what kind of networks do you have? So it's it's like the older I get, the better off I'm going to be because my my qualifying time hopefully will go down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's the uh, fun, the fun birthday cards that say, oh, you're not old. You just got into a new age group, right? Right, right, right. I just got into the right age group. Right. But really when it comes down to running for me, it's never been the amount of mileage. It's never been how far. I mean, sometimes it has been far. Like I've run, I've run 30 miles of Summit Ave in Brookline, which is a 17 degree grade at its, at its steepest grade in, uh, on Corey Hill with the November project in one morning. I did that in uh, seven hours. I ran 300 sections of Harvard Stadium during a November project workout. Uh, Those November project workouts. Four minutes. Those November project workouts are are tough. We met running around the Oval with uh, Nike Run Club 
um, morning. And that was awesome. And I remember seeing you Mm -hmm. and being like, who is this dude? And you had so much style in your beard and your hat. And I was like, who's this guy? Um, And you inspired. The the one thing that really um, stood out to me, besides your style, was every single time you passed someone or someone passed you, you would cheer. You would say out loud, you got this, you got this. Hey, you're doing great. Hey, you're doing great. And I was like, I want that energy. I want to be around that guy. And I have a lot of it. You do. You do. You're so encouraging. And so, you know, when you feel like you feel like a hamster running around the wheel and you're like, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm sweating and I'm hardly breathing and I'm, you know, feeling like I'm, I'm not going to make it. And then there's Alan just, you know, rocking it, styling, barely, barely looking like you're sweating and cheering for people. You still had breath to be able to cheer for people. Why is that important to you? Because I didn't have that. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you want to give that to somebody else so they don't feel that feeling. I don't want anybody else to feel that feeling. I don't know what their circumstances are. I don't know where they've been. I don't know where they're from, but I know what I can bring to the table every day and I can share a bit of myself because I know that that's the only thing we have in this life is what we choose to give, right? What we choose to give in each moment, and it doesn't matter. It's, it, it doesn't matter what you have to offer, what you have to give, as long as you're willing to share it. You know, we, we all want to be treated a certain way, but nobody knows how to treat us that way except for us. Mm-hmm. And we only, know how to, we only know how to do that if we practice. We only know how to do that if we're willing to have people not be okay with it, right? Most, most people think I'm ridiculous. Most people think... I'm overwhelming. Most people, then that's fine. I get it. I get it. I can be. If you don't know me, if, you, if you're not working out with me, if you've never gotten a high five from me, if you've never gotten a hug from me, then you don't understand. But what it is, is at some point, hopefully, you'll understand that it's the greatest gift I have to offer you. It's what I have. Yeah. And what and a I gift hope- that is. What a gift it is to be able to have that inner dialogue and to, and to be able to not only ask yourself the questions that are ultimately going to save your life and improve your life, but to ask yourself, what is it that other people need from me too? Because they're probably suffering in their own way. And to have that yeah. energy to look outward and inward and what do these guys need, even if you are having a tough tough as nails work out yourself to be able to have that energy. What I want to, I want to end it there, but I'm not going to, because I want to end it here. What would you tell your 11 year old self today? What would Alan, who's helping other people, who's inspiring people on this podcast, who's probably holding back tears like I am just because the only reason I'm holding them back is so I can finish the podcast. Um, But what would you tell 11-year-old Alan who is struggling and not feeling loved and not feeling supported and not feeling heard or understood? Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for finding a way through it, finding a way out of the darkness and into the light. Thank you for finding the courage to keep trying even though you didn't really have the ammunition to do it well right i was still trying to navigate waters it didn't matter that god brought me back it didn't matter that i was here 
because I still didn't get it. I was still living a victim's life. I was still having to deal with the energy that was around me and not learning to, to create my own. You know, it took me 37 years to figure out that I was important. You know, on January 4th, 2010, I had another come to Jesus moment where I was 265 pounds. I was at the end of my rope. I, I didn't know where I was headed. Like I just, I was in that moment and I realized, holy crap, what am I doing? Holy crap, what's going on with my life? I was over drinking, overeating, over fornicating, uh, over selling myself to other people and not finding the strength to give myself the time I needed. And so in that, in that same thing, I went in the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, man, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be, this can't be the reason God saved my life. This can't be the reason I'm still here. This can't be all I have to offer myself. This can't be all I have to offer the world around me. And thankfully I was like, you're right, it's not. And from that day forward, I went to the gym, got a gym membership at Workout World in Waltham. I went to Sports Authority and got a pair of running shoes and I started moving. I bought a, uh, a mountain bike and started riding on the Charles I picked up a camera and started taking photographs, never knowing that I would be an accomplished photographer 10 years later, never not knowing that that uh, fitness would be a huge part of my life, not knowing that I, I would meet someone like you, that I would meet someone like Elizabeth, that I would meet someone like Scott Strode, who's doing something to help people in recovery, not knowing any of these things. I still took that for that that step forward. I still went into the darkness looking for the light, trying to be the light, trying to find my light, trying to turn it back on, trying to give myself permission to fail along the way, to give myself room to grow, you know, to, to that baby steps okay, that two steps forward and one step back is still a step forward. And, you know, be better than yesterday and move forward was my motto for that year. And it, it like, I can't, thank myself enough. I can't thank my 11 year old self enough for having the courage to keep trying the courage to not have a sail on my boat. And I only had like a spoon, right? I was trying to row my boat with a spoon, you know, and finally I got a new boat with some great oars and I started rowing in a direction like Martin Luther King Jr. says, you don't have to see the whole staircase. You just have to see the first step, right? Yeah. We're the only thing standing in our way. We're the only thing in the way. That's it. We are what's in the way. Nobody else is in the way. Damn straight. We're in the way of ourselves. It's so true. We're in the way of what we can accomplish. We're in the way of better thinking, of better actions, of better feelings. Like the greatest thing is we have feelings and emotions, right? We're a complex. We have cognitive thoughts. But the greatest thing is your thoughts and feelings don't own you. They're just thoughts and feelings triggered by things along the way. Yep. What are you going to do to yeah. not allow those triggers to dictate your freedom? Well, I have no doubt whatsoever that when people hear this and hear your story and your attitude of gratitude toward your 11-year-old self that people will allow themselves a little bit more grace and a little bit more patience, including myself, I will try, um, to not be okay and to 
seek whatever help and whatever community that they need to survive and thrive in this world, this difficult world that we're all navigating, not just 2020. Again, as we said in the beginning of this episode, you know, adulting is really hard. You don't need to go through what Alan and I have gone through um, to know that and, and to, to ask for the help that you need um, and to, to seek your community and whatever that is. Um, but I know that I am grateful to sit in community with you, Alan, and, um, and to sit in community with the listeners to be able to hear your story and, and to feel like we're all sitting around a campfire right now mm-hmm. um, sharing this moment, whether someone's listening to it on a run or um, at home with the crazies um, <laughs> in a crowded household. So, Alan, I could talk to you for years. We both know this. I want to keep going, but I want to be respectful of the listeners' time as well. So, Alan so Shearer. Let, let me say one more thing. Of course, just, please do. You can't... You can't change the dysfunction in the dysfunction. You can't look for the support you need in the place that created the void in the first place. You can't put out the fire if you're standing in it. That it, it's so true, that is so important. You can't, you have to give yourself space. You have to give yourself time. It's okay to give yourself space, to move yourself away from those things that destroyed you the most, that made you feel less than, so that yeah. you can find out what you need to realize you already are enough and people are blessed to have you in their presence, including yourself. Be gentle with yourself. Be your best friend, not your worst enemy. Stop destroying yourself because that's all you know. You don't have to. It's, it's not necessary. It's not a prerequisite for this life for you to destroy yourself because other people projected their pain out onto you because they didn't know any better and they didn't even realize they were doing it. It's so true. You can't heal in the place that hurt you. It's just right. in the environment that hurt you. It's just not, it's not, it's not going to work. Okay You've got to reach for a ladder. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. You've just got to reach for a ladder somewhere or a step somewhere, the first staircase, right? Right. It's so important. It's, that's such an important message to give because too often we look in our comfort zone for some change and that's, that's not where it is. We all wish it were there. I do too. Believe me. We all want to um, be loved by the people we were born to. We all want to be loved by the people that the environment we grew up in were with. But if they can't give that to you yet, that's not your fault. That's not your responsibility. It's not your circus. They're not your clowns. All right. And that's okay. It's not your job or responsibility to live their life. It's your responsibility to learn to live yours more peacefully, more inwardly, so that you can battle what's out there better, stronger, more, more, more aware. You need to become more aware of yourself and you need to practice that. Life takes practice. Like anything else you want to be good at, it takes practice. You got to practice getting out the door. You got to practice putting your shoes on, practice brushing your teeth, practice looking at yourself in the mirror and looking at yourself and really seeing who you are and allowing yourself to have the life you have no idea is possible instead of continuing to try to live the life that people tried to make you live so that they were comfortable with you. It's okay to be uncomfortable. They should yes. be uncomfortable so that you can feel better about yourself. And if they still are uncomfortable when you build your own life, you'll at least be more prepared to handle it. I agree. Alan, thank you so much. 
Where can it's people find you? Actually, you know what? I'm going to put it in the show notes so that they can sure. have, so you can look at the show notes because some people will be running when you listen to this. Alan, thank you. I love you, buddy. You are an incredible human. Please have your wife give you a great big hug for me. And um, I, I hope uh, I hope you have a good rest of the day. I'm going to say goodbye. And now I'm okay. going to hit, I'm going to hit end recording.